Well, good morning. It is great to see you guys. It is great to have you guys back into town. I hope you guys had a great break and we're ecstatic that you guys are here. If you're visiting or if this is your first time to Grace or to college class, we're especially want to extend to you guys a welcome. We're thrilled that you're here with us. Uh, My name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here at our Southwood campus and it is a joy to get to worship with you guys again this morning. We've missed you guys over the break. And so let me pray for our time uh, as we jump into Acts chapter 15 this morning. Father God, we give you great thanks uh, that you are sovereign, that you are just, that you are righteous, and that you are gracious. And Father, I pray this morning, even as we open your word, Lord, I pray that you would teach us, that you would challenge us, that you would shape us. I pray that you'd use this time in our lives. I pray also that you would use me according to your purposes and that you'd allow my words to be yours and that you'd come into this time and that you would meet us wherever we are, wherever we've been over the winter break, and that you'd come and that you'd speak to us. I pray that you'd flip our worlds upside down and as you would shock us with the realities of your grace, how extravagant it is, how majestic it is, and how transforming it is, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, as you guys returned home to your college home this week, I wanted to ask you guys a simple question, and that's this. How many of you guys have a name for your home? All right, as you guys, also, okay, as you guys, your four roommates or so, uh, for some of you guys, I've, I've noticed that those who have names are often kind of two kinds of names. Some reflect geographically the street you live on, right? So there might be Dexter Place, there might be uh, Welsh Manor, but there's some of you guys who have more creative names for the places that you guys live, all right, that reflect, in a sense, who you guys are as roommates, reflect your identity, it reflects your values, and reflects really what you want to display to the world, all right? For my roommates and I in college, we had a name for ourselves and the place that we resided in. It really began really at a uh, historic dinner that would really change our lives our sophomore year at a Mexican restaurant that doesn't exist anymore here in town, all right? Uh, but there was a, a precious waitress that was serving us, and I think she was working for a tip because and it was going to be very effective, but eventually at one point during the dinner, she referred to one of our roommates, and no lie, as a stallion, all right? And immediately, a kind of a collective identity, we immediately kind of all puffed up our chest, felt very proud of our fact now that we were all, in our minds now, this fit, right? We, we are stallions. We are thoroughbred horses, all right? We are class A. And so where else do stallions reside? But a stables, all right? And so really for the rest of our college time, we would begin to refer to our home as the stables because where else do stallions reside, all right? Now, you think that's over the top. Well, we would take it another step further, right? Because we would begin to think, how do we begin to share this greatness, all right, that we possess as a collective unit with the campus and particularly with the ladies of Texas A&M University, all right? And so we thought, this seemed completely logical. We thought what we would do was this. We would start an annual date party, all right? Uh, we were jealous of the uh, sororities and the fraternities and the organizations that had their date parties and their t-shirts, and we wanted to in on that action, all right? And so we started an annual Winter Wonderland Festival with the stables, all right? So every year, four lucky ladies, all right, would have a memorable night with us, and they would walk away with a t-shirt, all right? A t-shirt, <laughs> I'm not lying, and a t-shirt that had a stallion like right here, Kind of like jumping out at you, like just to say, we are that amazing, right? So now this is what we did, and and no lie, no exaggeration, we genuinely thought as these four ladies proudly wore these shirts on campus that it would create a firestorm of interest so that people would begin to ask, what are the stables, right? Who are the stables, and how can I get in on this sweet action? All right, that's really what we thought, all right? And really for us, frankly speaking, our, our passion for our group was this exclusivity, all right? We were pretty proud of who we were, and really, no matter the the kind of notoriety that might find us, no matter what our t-shirts might do and the kind of firestorm it might create on campus, 
we were not taking any new people, all right? Uh, we were a closed group. There were no open doors. There were no open seats at the table. We were closed, but we wanted everyone to know of our greatness, all right? Now, we were then and still are quite over the top, all right? Uh, but I want to submit to you guys that I think in many ways the church, frankly, can act the exact same way, all right? I think the church can have an identity and can have a sense within its culture in which it wants to proclaim its greatness, but can do it in a way that, frankly, in a sense, communicates an exclusivity to the rest of the world, all right? I think for many of us in Christian organizations or even in the church today, we can speak in our own code language, right? We have a vernacular and a vocabulary that we use here on Sundays or in Bible studies that really the rest of the world has no idea sometimes what we're talking about. And sometimes even our language itself can, in a sense, be a bouncer or, in a sense, stiff-arm the rest of the world from entering into this thing, and people begin to think we're a clique or a country club. I think we can have our own T-shirts. We can have our own activities. Some of us can even have our own moral and cultural convictions and standards that, for many who are on the outside looking in, they have no idea what to do with us. In many ways, they just feel like they've been pushed out and stiff-armed and that they're not welcome. It's interesting. I think for many churches, they can value one of two things. They can either value their exclusivity and their uniqueness, or instead they can value really an invitation of grace that is given to all people everywhere. The church, by and large, will do one of two things, and you and I will do one of two things, even as individuals. We will either prize our exclusivity as a community, and we will treat the church like a country club, or we will value the grace of God that has been ushered and extended to all peoples everywhere because all are welcome into this organization and into this community and family. Really, even this morning, as we look at Acts chapter 15, you're going to see two groups within the church. They're going to have those two differing values, and they're going to come to battle with one another. One group is going to so prize the church's exclusivity and uniqueness, and another group that's going to so prize the grace of God that is an extension and an invitation the church has to all those who are on the outside. We as a church and we as individuals will be one of two kinds. We will move one of two directions. We will have one of two of those values. And the question is, which one will be for you? In Acts chapter 15, you're going to see these two groups really come to battle with one another. And really what you're going to see, really, I think, is that you're going to see a group of individuals who are going to frankly feel like when they think of the grace of God, it's going to scare them. You're going to have a group of people actually within the very church of God, the family of God, that when they think of the grace of God, they're going to see it as a currency or an asset that has to be guarded because it can be abused. And they're scared of what would happen if people got a hold of grace. (laughs) They're going to be scared. And we're going to have a battle that's going to break out, and it's not going to have any kind of subtlety. It's not going to have any kind of pleasantries from the very beginning. Look at chapter 15, verse 1 of the book of Acts, because the conflict will break out immediately, and it won't have any diplomatic niceties whatsoever. Verse 1, chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea, and they began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. A group of people had come down into Paul and Barnabas' missionary ministry and they'd come in to speak to these people that have been brought to the Lord by Paul and Barnabas and they began to declare to these people, look, I know you might be excited about your relationship with Jesus, but let me kind of cool things down a little bit because in order for you to get into this country club, you need to undergo the rite of circumcision and you need to obey the law of Moses. But really for this group of Jews who had a Jewish background, who were coming down from Judea, they were primarily concerned and passionate about the church's exclusivity, and they weren't really that excited about new people being part of this thing. So they began to prize, and they became passionate about circumcision, and they began to push it forward really as a bouncer at the front door of this community and this family. 
That in order for someone to come into the community, in order for someone to come into the family, they had to undergo circumcision and they had to obey the law of Moses. All right? Incredibly different message than what Paul and Barnabas were preaching. In fact, you're going to see Paul and Barnabas in verse 2 react strongly. Notice what Paul and Barnabas do as we look at these two different parties who are in the conflict. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. So these teachers come down, they begin to differ with Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas begin to debate them and differ with them. And a conflict breaks out that is so hot and that's so large that everyone else around them says, hey, you guys need to go up to Jerusalem to the headquarters of the church and you guys need to figure this thing out. This thing is huge, this thing is significant, and it's hot, and it's personal, and we're all confused, and we need to know what's going on. And so in a sense, Paul and Barnabas and the rest of those parties are going to be ushered and told to go to Jerusalem, and you're going to have a council that's going to to convene in chapter 15 of the book of Acts. And chapter 15 of the book of Acts will be one of the most significant chapters in the book that will really tell this early fledgling community really how they were to live and what God was doing within their community. This chapter is absolutely significant, really in the flow of the book of Acts and even the New Testament at large. But notice in verse 3, Luke is going to drop some seemingly random narrative details, but I think these narrative details really begin to show you the heart of the issue. Notice verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas are on their way up to Jerusalem, and therefore being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So they're passing on the way back to Jerusalem and they're talking of what God is doing amongst the Gentiles and how they're being included into this family of faith. And so you have from the very beginning, you have two different parties and you have a problem going on in this conflict. And the question is, what is the issue? You have an incredible contrast going on. You have one party that's really pressing and emphasizing circumcision as a means of exclusion of some people. And then you have Paul and Barnabas who are preaching a message of God's inclusion of a whole new group of people known as the Gentiles. They've been invited to the country club. They've been invited to the family. And so you have a debate going on and a conflict going on. And in many ways, I think for many, as you get into verse three, the question is, why is it so hot? Why is it that we have to have intermediaries? Why is this such a big deal? What's the big deal with circumcision, all right? I don't know if you guys have ever been a part of a conflict that you thought, man, that got personal and that got hot and I have no idea why we're arguing about such a trivial thing. I don't know if you guys have ever been in that moment. One of those first moments in my marriage occurred on our waiting in the airport for our plane ride to go to Maui on our honeymoon, all right? So life could not have been better, right? We are waiting to go to Maui for Pete's sakes, all right? We order food at a McDonald's in the airport, all right? Marcy tells me, hey, I'd love to have a couple fries, all right? And so I order enough to think she's gonna have a couple fries. I'll have enough to get fed. And then half the fries are eaten, all right? And so I begin to express frustration because now we're boarding, all right? We're boarding and there's no time to go get more food. I'm still hungry. We're boarding a long flight and I'm not sure if I'm gonna get fed and I'm panicking because I'm hungry, all right? And I'm expressing some frustration to my wife that she ate my fries, all right? And then she says, I think as an only child, you need to learn to share. I said, oh girl, you didn't, all right? I was like, you did not just go there, right? And then it was on, right? She got personal, all right? And so now we are just going at each other, all right? Over French fries, all right? It's like, why were we arguing over French fries before our honeymoon? What had happened, right? Our fledgling little marriage was already on the brink. I'm just kidding, right? But it was over French fries. It was over plus or minus 10 fries. And all of a sudden, we are at each other's throat. Okay, that's probably a little bit of exaggeration, right? But we were a little miffed. But why? Was it about French fries? No. 
It was about the fact that we were acting and speaking in ways that all of a sudden we weren't so sure of how one another felt about each other. We didn't feel valued. We didn't feel cared for. We didn't feel loved. So we were reacting quite strongly and all of a sudden we were in a conflict. I think for the Jews here in verses 1 to 3, as they're entering into this conflict, talking about circumcision, the issue for them really isn't about circumcision. (laughs) The issue for them is that all of a sudden, for much of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, the Jews, had been God's chosen people. They had a favored status before God, even amongst the rest of the nations. And now all of a sudden, God is beginning a new work in a kind of way where they are no longer so sure of where they stand with God. It's imagine if you guys were the oldest sibling in your family. It's like when a younger sibling is born and all of a sudden you don't know your place anymore, right? Am I still loved? Am I still cared for? Where do I now stand in this family? It's where the Jews were. Wondering, hey, where do I now stand? I don't know if I'm still valued. I don't know if I'm still loved. And so this thing is not at all about circumcision. It's about their standing in their community and what God thinks of them. They're jealous and they want to keep others out. I also think the, the Jews were a little bit concerned really with if the Gentiles were included into this community, what would happen to the community? I think honestly, the Jews were looking at these Gentiles who were quite a bit different, who were living pretty rampant, immoral lives. If they were being ushered into this community completely freely on the basis of what Jesus has done, and then I think these Jews were concerned that the grace of God would not clean these Gentiles up enough before their community and their church would be ruined. The Jews had two primary problems. One was, hey, there's a new kid on the block, and all of a sudden I feel insecure. (laughs) And number two, this new kid on the block is messed up. (laughs) And if they're a part of my country club, it's going to go to hell in a handbasket, right? Because for the Jews, they were concerned and they were scared of the grace of God. That God would give something to you and I that we did not pay for, that we did not merit, that we did not work for. The Jews were concerned that if the Gentiles entered the community because of grace, then they would abuse it, they would waste it, and they they would ruin this community. Ultimately, I think the Jews were scared of the grace of God. And so what the Jews wanted to do is they wanted to limit the grace of God. They wanted to diminish the grace of God. They wanted to put some fine print in the wording before the Gentiles were ever allowed in. Ultimately, I think really the great question really as we get into Acts chapter 15 is this, has God extended his reach to the Gentiles? And the question is unequivocally, yes. And now the church is wrestling with the Gentiles coming in with Jews already there. How do these two different groups connect and intermingle? How are they going to be brought in? And so Paul and the church council is going to convene to really answer those questions. And what I want to do for you this morning, I want to ask you two simple questions. One is this, does the grace of God insult you? As you think of the grace of God, what is your emotional response to it? That God would give to you something that you do not deserve. That God would pardon your guilt, pardon your sins, not on the basis of anything that you could work for or merit, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. And that the only way that you could have that forgiveness of sins, the only way that you could have that eternal life is the fact that someone else had to do something for you. By and large, that is insulting to you and I that love self-sufficiency, that love self-entitlement, that love to feel like we've earned and that we've merited something. And here we hear, (laughs) no. The only way that you can merit the approval of God is that God has had to do something on your behalf and he's offered to you an absolutely free gift and that you're utterly helpless and utterly unable to merit his approval and do anything to make him smile upon you. And that what God had to do is do it on your behalf and that what Jesus does in his death and his resurrection is that he pays your debt so that you are no longer in debt because you didn't have enough currency to pay the debt that you incurred by your sin. Grace, for many of us, can be insulting. 
to realize that we are utterly helpless and that someone had to do something for us that we cannot do ourselves. Some of us have gotten past that, realizing, yeah, you know, we are utterly helpless. <laughs> and that we are in desperate need of God to do something for us. But for some of us, I think we're just like the Jews, and the grace of God scares us. But the grace of God scares us. And so for some of us, we want to limit the grace of God. We want to write in some fine print into the words God has as he invites people into his family because we're afraid that they may come into the family and live just like they did prior. We're afraid that they could come into the family and ruin the family. And so we want to put some fine print in the transaction as they enter the family because we're afraid that their lives may not be changed. We're afraid that they will abuse the grace of God that was given to them. As if it was a Ferrari whose keys were just handed off and they're just going to go out and wreck it. And so we write stipulations in and expectations in. And ultimately what we do is we diminish the grace of God and it loses its power. And what it becomes is not grace at all, but works. I don't know your background. I don't know where you've come from. For many of you guys, you may think that you need to work for the approval of God. And one of the things I want you guys to hear from the very outset of the beginning of a semester is you cannot work for it. You cannot merit it. You cannot approve it. You cannot earn it. God has to give it to you as a free gift. That's the only way that we can come into a relationship with Jesus. And as we begin a new semester, you need to know where you stand. There's no way that you can merit the approval of God. God had to do something on your behalf. And so ultimately when Paul and Barnabas hear what these Jewish believers are saying, they get really worked up, they get really bothered, and they want to fight. And ultimately what we're going to have in verses 4 and on is that we're going to have a fight that's going to break out. It's going to convene in a church council, and you're going to have two different parties with two different theories as to how you enter into a relationship with Jesus. And ultimately, it's interesting, look at verse 4, you're going to get two, two theories and one council. Verse 4, when Paul and Barnabas arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And so again, these two parties come before the council. They present their arguments. Paul and Barnabas is saying, no, it's just by the grace of God. The Jewish believers saying, no, no, you have to be circumcised and you have to obey the law in order to merit the approval of God. And now the council comes in to look at this. And for many who have thought about church councils, many have this idea of a church council as a group of Christian leaders who come together and they determine what is true and what is doctrine. <laughs> as if they're fabricating a story or as if they're fabricating really what God has done and they're making it up behind closed doors. And I want you guys to hear that's not at all what's going on. In fact, I had a church history professor in seminary who made the parallel between church councils and uh, tourist boats in Paris that are going down waterways at night. This is what he said, all right? He said that in many ways in night in Paris, what happens is you have these waterways that are completely barely lit at night. And so what you have often happening in the night in Paris is you have lovers in these waterways just making out, all right? And these tour boats come down the waterways with a, with a light and it begins to shine back and forth and it begins to highlight and reveal where these lovers are, all right? And all of a sudden they're no longer in the dark. But were they there to begin with? Yes. What does the light do as it comes down? It reveals the already existing relationships that were there. And what a church council does is it shines a light, does not determine and fabricate and decide doctrine and truth and the Christian story. What it does is it highlights where God is and how God has been working and what God has been declaring. Truth was existing prior to the church council. The church council is a way to just shine the light on it to show us what God has been doing. In fact, as you look at the arguments from both Peter and James here in a minute, as we look through Acts chapter 15, what we're going to see is that the basis of their argument is going to be directly tied to what God has done, what God has declared, and how God is working. It's not that they're fabricating something. They're just bringing light to what God has declared and what God is doing. 
And so really, ultimately what a church council is, is just a Parisian tourist boat at night showing lovers who are making out, all right? You heard it here first at Southwood, all right? That's what church councils are, all right? So look with me as we watch the tourist boat go down, all right? Verse 7. You're going to ultimately have Peter who's going to make an argument, all right? And his exhibit number one is going to be God himself. Verse 7. Notice what Peter says as they debate this issue. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter's first example, first exhibit to them is, hey, how do we know what God is doing? Well, God had declared it to you guys, all right? God made a choice, and we've seen the result of it, that the Gentiles are hearing and they're believing now. Verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. It's not just that God made a choice, but he's also testified. He's declared it to be so, and he's even granted his spirit, not just to the Jews, but now to the Gentiles as well, as we've been walking through the book of Acts. Verse 9, and he made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. Peter says, hey, as we wrestle with what is going on, ultimately, Peter's going to say, look, look how God has been working. God declared that this would be so. God was acting to show it is so because he is drawing the Gentiles into the community and they are welcome by grace. It's not just that God is exhibit number one, but really the next part of the argument Peter's going to have is that the law would have excluded all people. Notice what he says in verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the necks of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? What is Peter saying in verse 10? I think as he begins to speak of the law, he says, for the Jewish believers, what they were doing is they were talking about circumcision as a law, and the law, and they were treating it as a bouncer outside of the door of the community of faith. And ultimately what they were doing is they were bouncing out those they did not want to be part of the family. And you know what Peter says is, if the bouncer is the law, then he would have bounced out the Gentiles and he would have bounced out you. <laughs> so it's inappropriate to use that as a bouncer because it's not, not only is it not true, but you're holding them to a standard that you can never have lived up to. And so it's inappropriate. In fact, Paul will go on further in Galatians chapter three, and he'll say this, speaking of the law, he says, for if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. Ultimately, if the law could have led people to life, eternal life, then righteousness would have been based on the law, but it couldn't do that. The law was not able to do that. But the scripture or the law has shut up everyone under sin. (laughs) When the law comes and the scriptures come, they show every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God and none of us have a defense. All of us have fallen short. All of us have lied. All of us have fallen short of the perfect and holy standard of God's righteousness so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. There's a great contrast between law and grace. That all law can do for you and I is reveal just how far we have fallen and how short we've come with what God wanted and with what God expected. You want to go with law, you want to go with works, you want to go with what you can merit, you're not going to get very far with God. But instead, you're seeing that realization and realizing that you've fallen short is the opportunity to realize what God has provided you in the gift of Jesus Christ. And the gift of his death and his resurrection so that he could forgive your sins in a way that you could not do for yourself and providing you what you could not purchase and what you could not merit. The law cannot save you and only condemns you. Morality and good works cannot save you. It only shows you how short you fall and how far you fall short of what God has required. 
And in seeing that, then you have an opportunity to have your eyes open to realize that God has done something for you that you could not do for yourself. And he's given you what you did not deserve. It's called grace. Grace. In fact, he's going to go on to verse 11. He's going to come back from the law and say, now that we've realized that the law is a bouncer that everyone would have been bounced out of this community by, then verse 11. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. You cannot be saved on the basis of law, on the basis of works. You can only be saved and enter into a relationship with Jesus on the basis of grace. <laughs> that God would give to you what you could not deserve. That God would give to you what you could not purchase. It's called grace. And it is an absolutely free gift with no strings attached, no fine print, no stipulations. It's an absolutely free and even abusable gift. <laughs> That Jesus would die for your sins and offer to you forgiveness of sins and eternal life, not on the basis of what you can do or even what you can promise, but on the basis of what he has done and what he's promised for you. That his death would be sufficient to forgive you of your sins and his death would be sufficient to seal your soul for eternal life forever to be. Grace is that absolutely astonishing and that stunning. I want to ask you guys, even as you think of the grace of God, how do you respond to it? For many of you guys, I want to ask you guys, do you still think you can earn the grace of God? For some of you guys who've entered into a relationship with Jesus, you entered by grace, but you've picked back works back up again as if that's how you maintain your relationship with Jesus, right? Maybe you began by grace, but you've not ended and continued by grace. You can only merit the approval of God, whether you know Jesus or you don't know Jesus on the basis of his grace, that he gives to you what you cannot merit and approve and earn. And that's how you start with Jesus, and that's how you continue with Jesus. This morning, if you do know Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you as you look back on your winter break, for some of you guys, it may have been a really difficult break. (laughs) For some of you guys, you may have been in places and you may have done things you hadn't done in a long time, and you may feel discouraged and you may feel distant from the Lord. And what I want to remind you this morning, if you know Jesus Christ, or even if you don't know Jesus Christ, what defines your relationship with him and what determines his approval of you is never your performance and it is never your works. It is always by his grace and what he has done and declared to be true of you. His grace is that stunning. It is that transforming. And what truly transforms people and changes people is not law, but grace. So yeah, I think grace is way more transforming. And so we don't have to limit it. We don't have to put fine print in the stipulation as people come into the community of faith because when they realize the true reality of grace, how robust it is, how significant it is, how transforming it is. Nothing will leave lives more changed than the grace of God. Law falls so short of that. I want to ask you, do you realize absolutely how stunning the grace of God is? Do you realize how absolutely backwards it is from everything else that you and I have been trained in in life? (laughs) Even from our parents, from our school teachers, from every evaluation system you've ever had. Approval always comes on the basis of performance, but not with God. It is always by his grace that you begin and that you maintain a relationship with him. Grace is that otherworldly. It is that absolutely perplexing and revolutionary when you grasp it and you get it. It's interesting. If you look at this passage, really grace will lead to a fight. All right. Paul and Barnabas will go toe to toe with these Jewish false teachers. It will lead to a fight, but this passage will end really showing that it's not just that grace is a worthy fight but ultimately that grace can actually unify people. It will lead to a fight initially, but what we're going to see fascinating, kind of in an ironic way as this passage ends, is that grace will end up unifying people, all right? 
for the Jews, the law was a way to exclude and push the Gentiles out, but grace was a way to bring the Gentiles in. What is fascinating how this passage turns and will end up showing that the Gentiles are going to send grace to the Jews by the end of this passage. Notice really where James picks up in verse 13. James will say in verse 13, after they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. And basically what he's going to say is he's going to confirm exactly what Peter is going to say. He's going to first confirm Peter's experience and say, yeah, we've seen through Peter's own ministry that God has been extending his reach to the Gentiles by grace. And then James goes one step further in verses 15 and 18 to say this, that ultimately Old Testament prophets were foreshadowing this reality in the days past. That God would extend his kindness and his richness and his faithfulness to the Gentiles and he would invite them into his family and into the body. And then he concludes kind of in a, in a confirmatory way in verse 19 and notice what he says, therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Basically, he says, hey, circumcision is not to be a bouncer at the front door. Let them in the front door. They are part of the community of faith because God has invited them in. He's saved them. He's transformed them. He's given them his spirit. And so invite them in and circumcision is not a bouncer at the front door. Do not trouble them anymore. Do not harass them. They are part of the family of faith, all right? But then notice what he says in verse 20. And for many of us, we get tripped up on this. Notice what he says, verse 20. But... Ultimately, James is going to confirm really Peter's comment, but then James is going to provide a stipulation to the Gentiles. Notice what he says in verse 20. But we write to them that they abstain from the things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. He'll say it similarly in verse 28, 29. Notice what he says in 28, 29. He confirms again in verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. You were saved by grace. That is the essentials, all right? But here are the non-essentials, verse 29. That you would abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. And if you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. It's interesting. Other than the fornication thing, the very things he mentions were aspects of the law. All right. There are aspects and regulations of the Old Testament law that we know as we move in the New Testament that has been done away with. All right. The Gentiles did not have to obey the law. Romans chapter 10 verse 4 tells us that Christ is the end of the law. The law was not necessary to be justified and enter into a relationship with Jesus. And the law was also not necessary, the Old Testament law, in order to be maintained into a relationship with Jesus and to walk with him. But it's interesting because James is going to call the Gentiles to following through on a few of the regulations that were a part of the Old Testament law. Why? Why is he calling them to perform these things when the law was removed and they did not have to? I think it's actually fascinating here. You have quite a bit of an ironic twist in the passage because ultimately grace is what brought the Gentiles into the community. And what James is going to call the Gentiles to perform and what they're going to have to live out is grace to the Jews. All right, here's what I mean. Think about the Jewish believers who were there, part of the body, who were not wanting the Gentiles in. And James is going to say, no, no, no. The Gentiles are in by grace. You need to extend them grace. These legalistic Jews that want to exclude the Gentiles, Ultimately, James is going to say, no, 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 you need to include them in. And then he's going to turn around, he's going to address the Gentiles. And what he's going to say to the Gentiles is this, by grace, you need to now act in such a way to the Jewish uh, legalists that wanted to exclude you. And here was the grace that they were to show. What they did not have to do because the law was done away with, James is going to ask them to perform because it was so sensitive and it was such an issue to the Jews, all right? Things, uh, meat sacrificed to idols, things that were strangled with blood were huge elements of the Old Testament law that were really vital to the Jews, all right? 
The Gentiles did not have to obey those things because the law was removed. But James is going to say, as you enter this new community with this new composition of people, Jews and Gentiles, I want you to be sensitive to your Jewish brethren. And out of that sensitivity, I want you to abstain from these things. Ultimately, they had the right not to abstain. They could have eaten those things if they wanted to. They had the right that they could have exercised because the law had been removed. They could have done what they wanted. What was essential was an understanding of grace at the front door. And what James will move on as he begins to speak to the Gentiles here at the end of the passage was also an element of grace. The very Jews that wanted to kick them out and keep them out of this community, James is going to ask them to show these Jewish legalists grace that the Gentiles would live in such a way they would not create a stumbling block, would not create a difficulty for their Jewish brethren, but would lead to unity of the body. It's fascinating. Grace will lead to a fight early on in the passage, but then the passage will come back around and we'll see that grace will lead to a unity amongst the believers. The grace will be the front door that will allow the Gentiles in, but then grace will also be the foundation of the relationships and the life of the body, even in the living room of this home, so to speak. They're there to extend grace to the Jews acting in ways that they did not have to for the sake of unity in the body. I'm going to ask you guys, even as you think about your own lives, as you think about your roommates, as you think about people in your family, there are many things that you have rights to do and rights that you can exercise. But there may be times, whether it's alcohol, movies, TV shows, or different liberties that you have, that it may be advantageous and that it may be loving and edifying for you not to exercise those rights. To not advertise those things that are permissible for you but maybe not beneficial to those that are around you. Had a good roommate in college that uh, really had a strong conviction against alcohol, all right? And so even when we got to 21, we didn't have alcohol in our home because it really for him was an issue that would have created a disunity amongst our fellowship in our home. And so we laid down that right. Even at 21, even when it was legal and permissible to drink, we said, you know what, we're not going to. For the sake of the unity with our brethren, we're going to lay this individual right down. And what James is asking these Gentiles to do is that they would layer down rights for them that were permissible, but not beneficial to the body. One of the things I want to challenge you guys to, as you enter a new semester, as you enter into the community, whether it's uh, in small groups here with us or whether it's on campus or, or maybe it's just even in your home, is that you would be sensitive and that you'd think of the body and the community that you're a part of. And you begin to really examine and wrestle with, hey, some of the rights that I have, some of the choices that I make, while they may be permissible for me, And while I may feel a real freedom to these things, uh, is it beneficial to others? And what grace does and what grace instructs you is to begin to realize that no, it may not be beneficial. And when it's not beneficial, grace calls you to lay those things down. That you'd give to your brother and you'd give to your roommates, you give to a family member what they do not deserve and what they've not merited. That in sensitivity for the sake of unity and maturity, that you'd lay those rights down and you'd live in a way that really leads to unity and leads to maturity. I think for many of us, we have convictions and we have uh, elements that we really like to advertise or we like to push or things that we like to be true of ourselves. And there are times when that may not be helpful. There are times as you look at your community that you're a part of that you may have to wrestle with and go, hey, is this a right I just need to lay down? It may be permissible for me, but is it beneficial? I want to challenge you to examine some of the choices you make in light of those factors. Do you know who's around you? Do you know how it may in fact impact others? And it is grace that not just invites anyone and everyone into the family, but it's grace that totally reorders the way that we relate to one another, people from different backgrounds, of different ethnicities, of different uh, convictions, of different emphases. And grace unites us together and calls us together. 
That's the great wonder of what grace does. And I'll tell you guys, I think for me, there's probably no doctrine, there's no element that I am more passionate about than the grace of God. Even for us as a church, we are centrally focused on the grace of God. That's why we are Grace Bible Church. That's why we're fine even going with a shorthand term of grace. (laughs) If there was something that could be true of our community, that could be true of us even in our teaching, if it's grace, then we are as happy as can be. I'll tell you, if you've been here for the first time this Sunday or if you're going to be here for a while, we will preach and we will talk about the grace of God until we are blue in the face. Because what troubles us and what concerns us is that more and more, larger and larger, I continue to see churches and individuals that are, that are limiting the grace of God. They want to protect the grace of God, that it not be abused, that it not be taken advantage of. Well, you know what? I think the grace of God can handle it. And then when people grasp the real magnitude and the freedom that comes with the grace of God, it is, that, it is then that it is the most powerful and the most transforming. So I'll tell you, as you guys are here at Grace, you're going to hear Grace until we are blue in the face. Because we are singularly passionate about the way that the grace of God invites men and women into the community and the way that the grace of God transforms men and women in the community. There is nothing like the grace of God. Law doesn't hold a candle to it. Grace grace, God's grace. That's what we're about. In fact, if you guys had an opportunity this winter break to see Les Mis, you guys saw one of the most powerful portrayals of grace. That grace accepts an outcast, that grace accepts a sinner, that grace accepts a criminal, and then grace transforms that criminal. What grace can do when it's realized, when it's grasped, and when it is experienced is something unlike anything else. So our hope for you guys this semester is not just that you'd experience Grace Bible Church, that you guys would experience in a more profound way this semester the grace of God, that it would reach deeper in your hearts, that it would transform your lives more deeply and more widely than any other semester before. We love the grace of God and we're going to be all about it. And so what I want to do this morning, even as we wrap up and the band's going to come back up, and I want you guys to have an opportunity just to ponder afresh and to spend some time, even as we wrap up, and really meditating on the grace of God. What Jesus has done on your behalf, what he's provided for you absolutely freely of charge, what he's done that you could not do, what he's offered you that you could not purchase. And so I want you just consider that. I want you guys just to wrestle with that and just to ponder in a fresh way, in a deeper way, really what God has done for us. Thank you.